Good morning, gentlemen. Bokir Tov. Good morning, everyone's here. Good morning, Sammy. Special welcome. Okay. So we're continuing the parsha of Ayakel, which is giving us a detailed description of how Moshe commands the Jews and how the Jews actually build the entire Mishkan. And I promise I'm going to try and go a little bit more deep into the spiritual dimensions of what's being built because we already discussed the physical aspects of it. And I'll share where my own I'm still struggling with, but let's first continue where we're holding. So we're holding the third aliyah of Ayakel, which is where basically Moshe says, that now that you've bought all of this wealth, we discussed a great length yesterday, and I pointed out 29 verses just describing the donations that the Jews brought, counting all 15 items that they brought and how they brought it, and the wise woman and the, the generous hearts. So now Moshe says, you have all this material, but we need someone to be in charge of the project to build it. So for that look, I have a, an, I've endowed a special wisdom of the heart, we discussed that yesterday, to Betzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Yehuda. This is a person of tremendous lineage and importance. Betzalel is the son of, the grandson of Hur. You know Hur is, right? Miriam. Hur is the son, yes. Hur is the son of Miriam, who stood up against the Jewish people when they were going to uh, do a golden calf. And he courageously and bravely said, you cannot do this. And because of his courage to try and stop the Jews from sinning, he was stoned to death. Great-grandson of Miriam, tremendously brave woman. And on the other side, he's from the tribe of Yehuda because he was the son of Kalev. Miriam married Kalev ben Yefunah. Kalev ben Yefunah was one of the twelve spies that went to Israel during the story of the spies, but him and Joshua were the only two that didn't come back with a negative report. Kalev is from the tribe of Yehuda. So, Hur... The grandfather Betzalo is the son of Kalev from the tribe, the prince of the tribe of Yehuda, the son of Miriam, the sister of Moshe and Aaron. So we're talking about a guy from really, really royal lineage, creme de la creme of the Jewish people, you know, from the family of Moshe, from the family of Kalev, the chief of Yehuda. And he was given, it says, God, Vayimale Oiso Ruach Elokim. Hashem gave him a special spirit of divine spirit, of Ruach Elokim, Bechachma, Betvuna, Uvedas. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, or you know, to have the brilliance to understand how to make each and every one of the vessels of the Mishkan, all the work that needed to be done, to know how to design the woven designs, how to work in gold and silver and copper, which is another miracle because the Jews were slaves in Egypt. In Egypt, they didn't work with gold and silver. What did they do in Egypt? They built pyramids with big mud bricks. The art of making a brick when mixing mud. It's not the same like making fine stones, making gold. It's a whole different uh, skill set. He gave him Olahoro, uh, he gave him all the wisdom to do it. Olahoros, Nasan Belibo. He endowed in his heart the wisdom to work in all the crafts. Again, keep bringing back here that the wisdom is in their heart to do all these things. And together with him, he gave Ahaliyav, Ben Achisamach, Lematedan. Together with Betzalel is Ahaliyav. From the family, from the son of Achisama, from the tri- tribe of Dun. Basically, a non-heard of, never before mentioned person. He has no lineage, no, no credentials, no uh, family background. He's seemingly a nobody. No one, we don't know who Achisama is. We don't even know who his grandfather's grandfather is, I even mentioned. We don't know anything just from the tribe of Dun. Dun's considered one of the lowest of the tribes. And here you see how the Torah, how God wanted that both the most prestigious of the tribes... And the most simple of the Jews should have equal ownership and equal investment in the building of the Mishkan. And as the Torah continues and says in the next chapter, 
that they, again, it's, it's repetitive, but it's not really repetitive. It keeps on, you see how much Hashem appreciates this. Habitzala and Aliyah and every ish, chacham lev, every man of a wise heart that Hashem gave into his heart. The chachma utvuna, bahema, that they should have within, within them this knowledge and wisdom in order to know how to do all of the work, all of the avodah sakodesh, the holy labor, everything that God had commanded. And Moshe calls to Bitzalel and to Aliyah and to all the wise hearted people that Hashem gave into their heart the wisdom. Everyone that their heart inspired them to come close to do the work that Hashem had commanded to be done. <laughs> it's a very long word, but it shows you how, how precious to Hashem is this work that all these wise hearted people came to do. And then comes one of every rabbi's most famous verses in the whole Torah. You know what's a rabbi's most famous verse in the whole Torah? Yeah, yeah, but not just about money. You're on the right track. <laughs> You're on the right track, but better than just money. No, we're talking about money, the whole parsha, all the gold, silver, and copper. Says the Torah that Moshe took all of the donations that had come in, <coughs> and he sees people been bringing nonstop donations, right? All we're talking about the beginning of parsha. All these wise-hearted people are bringing so much food, so much stuff, until they say to Moshe, the people in charge of the project say to Moshe. The nation has brought too much money. There's more, there's more than we have what to do with. We have more than we need to do the work that God has commanded. Um, so, this is my favorite verse. They say to Moshe, The nation has brought more. More than is needed to do the work. More than Hashem has commanded to be done. So Moshe puts out a, a message to the camp saying, Each man and woman should not bring any more donations. Because we already have too much, by and the nation stopped to bring. Uh, and then, in truth is the next verse is even better. The next verse says that the people, the work of contributing the first day sufficed for everything they needed, that everything they needed, and there was extra. Beautiful verse, huh? <laughs> Beautiful verse. Okay. Anyway, now let's get to the uh, good stuff. So, what's the very first thing the Torah describes is actually going to be made? The curtains. That's the first thing I'm going to say now. Different than the order in Parshas Truma. In Parshas Truma, we started with the vessels. We started with the Aron, right? And we worked our way out. And we explained we started with the purpose. You start with the end. You start the beginning with the end in mind. So when the Torah was telling us about, when God was telling Moshe about the building of the Mishkan, he starts with describing the ark. Even though you don't normally start building a home by talking about the furniture you want in the bedroom. Right? You start with the foundations and the plumbing and the electricity and you work your way uh, inward. But the objective, the ultimate purpose of the Mishkan was the Ark, the place where God would reside. So I started with that. Here, in the actual construction, we start with how all of the wise-hearted people make the ten curtains, the tapestry that were hung as the roof over the Mishkan. And I'll explain it in a second. But why do we start with this? Two reasons. We remember I said yesterday that the very wise woman had a special technique. They were able to weave the hair of the goats while it was still on the goats of the uh, on on the back of the goats. While it was still fresh, soft, pliable hair. So they wove it. And you can't leave it there too long until you build all the beams. First of all, because the hair will continue to grow, so it'll get ruined. Secondly. Because if you're going to leave it, the goats are in pain. Their hair is all woven up. You know what I'm saying? So, therefore, to, observe, to remove their pain, we start with the making of the tapestries. Let me very quickly just describe what they were, and then we'll try and get into a little bit more Kabbalistic 
what the, the Orachayim explains about them. Basically, as we explained, there was different sets of tapestries. The first set of tapestry was made out of this combination of 28 different, uh, th- sorry, 20, uh, yeah, 24 strands of six, uh, six strands of purple wool, six strands of uh, crimson wool, turquoise wool, and then six strands of linen, and then, yeah, so 24 strands of wool. That was 28 almost long, and it was 10 pieces. And so I'm explaining this in the significance. I remember the numbers. It was 10 pieces. Each piece was four amos wide by 28 amos long, right? They wove five together. So they sewed five on this side. They sewed five on that side. And then they had 50 clasps to connect the five on this side and the five on this side. So in total, how long was the first tapestry? Do the math. 40 times 10, or 44 times 10 is 40, right? Times 28 long. That was the first tapestry. On top of that was a second one of the goat here. That one was 11, not 10. So a six and five. And then you had the third one, which was just the tachashkin on top. And we had discussion of those two different ones with tachash mixed with goat skin, therefore it was just a tachash on the very top, but not going down the side of the walls. Okay, and last time we looked, I went through all the measurements, exactly how long the beams were and where the silver sockets, but I'm going to skip that. So let's discuss two things. First, let's discuss Ar HaChayim. Of course, there's a lot to, if we have time to look more, but the Ar HaChayim gets a little bit Kabbalistic here, explaining the numbers of 10 and 11 and why we need these different numbers. What are the 10 tapestries? Meaning, Hashem could have very just simply just said, make a tapestry 40 amas long. Right? That would be the easiest way to say it. Instead, it's much more complicated. Make 10 tapestries. Each tapestry is four amos, four cubits. And then weave them together or sew them together. So now you have a set of 10 tapestries. You have five tapestries and five tapestries. And then connect them with hooks. Right? So what does the idea of 10 tapestries represent? The ten, well, he said that the world was created with... Ten utterances. Basara Mamaros Nivraha Ten utterances the world was created, which is connected to the ten spheroth. Each one represents a different uh, divine energy in the world. But the world was created with ten utterances. And by making the primary, or I didn't say the other reason, the primary building of the Mishkan is the curtains. Meaning, when you build a home, when you say the home is built, when the roof is on, of course, it's only finishes. But when you, as long as it's just walls, you don't have a place yet. When you put on the roof, now it's a place. You're not done, but that's the primary part of construction. So the covering of the Mishkan is a primary act that made into a Mishkan. So the building of the Mishkan with these ten tapestries that made it into a roof, that made it closed, is co- corresponds to the ten utterances by which Hashem created the world to tell you that the Jewish pe- that the building of the Mishkan is equal to the entire ten utterances of creation. All of creation is represented or is equal within this building of the Mishkan, and through the Jewish people making the Mishkan, they merit to have the, the right, or the, the, this is the merit in which the entire world deserves to exist, all ten utterances deserve to exist. Okay, that is as far as number ten. However, as you go further, you'll see it's divided into two sets of five. So you have one tapestry, it's ten, two sets of five, and then the second set is 11. The second set of curtains that went on top of the first one was 6 and 5, which is represented to in the name of Yudhei and Vavhei. God's name is Yudhei Vavhei, 
and it's a little bit complex. It's actually a lot complex, and actually they don't even translate it here. But basically, so if you break it down without getting too lost, you have the four. Each curtain was four amos wide. Why four amos? For the four letters of yud hey, vav hey, and then you have five and five being brought together to make yud to make ten. That's the first letter of God's name. But the yud and the hey ten by two halves of the hey coming together. Which, by the way, the letter yud. Is vav The point is, you have the letter hey. As if you spell out the letter yud, you have yud, vav, and dalid. The dalid, and if you put the vav inside it, is the shape of the letter hey. So you have the hey of the miloy of yud, and then the second letter of God's name is hey. So it's hey and hey. That's the two fives that were joined together to make one long tapestry of ten, which is the first half of God's name yud hey. The second one is vav What was the second tapestry? It wasn't five and five. It was six and five. Vav is six. Hey is five. So you see the name of God in these tapestries that are placed over um, that are placed over the Mishkan. The second thing I want to talk about is the the images that were woven into the into this tapestry. The bottom tapestry, which was these twenty-four strands of of uh, different color wool and linen that was woven together. It was a very, very complex technique of weaving it. Why was it so complex? So we explained, we learned this last time, the woman wove, Im- wove images into the actual tapestries. They made images. And what was brilliant about this was that when you looked at the image on both sides of the curtain, what did you see? The image. Normally, when you weave, what happens to the other side? It's all, yeah, it's all messed up. And even if you go through all the way and try to make it neat, the image on the back side is going to be in reverse. It's going to be in reverse. So even if you don't just cut it like the way you normally do weaving, let's say even if you like make a design all the way through, the back side is going to be backwards. The miracle over here was that they were able to weave it in a way that both sides, that you looked at the curtain, you saw the image of the eagles or the, or the lines that were there. Now, yeah. What's the symbolism that was similar with the tablets that you, on both sides, you could see? That there's no back side. Right. Yeah, you had the same with the tablets, right. but there was no back side. There was no front and back. All sides were the front of it. But so it's similar, uh, similar concept. Similar concept. Similar concept. I guess there's no back to Hashem. Everything is the front of Hashem. That's a good question. I'm not. Uh, I have to think about that. That's a good question. Um, I mean, by Hashem, by the tablets, Hashem's work is perfect. There can never be a backside to Hashem's work. But here, the curtains are made by people, but I guess the same idea. There's no backside. Everything is perfect. Now, there's a different discussion in the commentaries. It says that there was an eagle and a lion on these curtains. It's not clear if there was one of each, one large one, or if there was rows of them. In different opinions, some say there was rows, like little, you know, a whole row of lions, a whole row of eagles. <clears throat> but the question really is, why are there images of animals in the base of Migdash? It should be absolutely forbidden to have any image of an animal. And remember that in the Ten Commandments, Hashem said clearly, make no images in front of me and all that. And we don't make images, we don't make statues. And yet even till today, you'll see many, many shuls that have lions on them, right? Many shuls of all different uh, cultures and styles, but they have the lion. An eagle also, but less, but you do see also the eagle, but more is the Ari, the lion. And seemingly, it's against the Torah. 
So we're, but it's, it's obvious not because it had it in the Mishkan. So it's not like a new invention. You'll never see a Shazal beer on the Torah, right? Or, uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, any other kind of animal. It's a nice chihuahua. I'm saying it's exclusive to the lion, to the eagle. So where does that come from? So it's something I'm struggling with. I still haven't, think, but, but one thing I found very interesting that gives some clarity is that when the Jewish people were at Har Sinai, what happened? The heavens opened and they saw the Maisim Arkava, which means they saw the vision of the chariot upon which rests the Kisei HaKava, God's throne of glory. This throne resting on this chariot is described at great length in the, in the prophecy of Yechezkel, that's his vision. The Jewish people saw it. And so what did they see? They saw the four sides of this chariot. I only discovered, when I was looking to the golden calf, the whole story I discovered that according to one opinion, the Kruvim, well, I'll get to the, the I'll explain this actually. The Kruvim, that the Kruvim also were calf. I'll explain in a second. But what did they see when they saw the Maisa Markava? They saw on four sides. On one side is a face of a bird, an eagle. On one side is a face of an Aryeh, a lion. On one side is a face of an ox. And on the front side is a face of a person. These are the four aspects of Hashem's energy into the world, representing the birds of the sky by the eagle, representing the domesticated animals through the ox, the wild animals of the field through the lion, and then humans through the face of an ima- the image the of a man. Well, the com- like an animal combination of an animal and the person. Yeah. But this, but here it's from Hashem, the Maisa Markava. So the point is that when they saw it open up, they recognized that Hashem Himself expresses Himself in the world. Primarily, all domesticated animals get their divine energy through the Pnei Shar of the Markava, through this divine image of an ox. That is the first primary physical, physical uh, manifestation of Hashem's energy. There's many levels of gradation of spiritual infinite light or energy becoming physical matter, right? It's, it's, a, it's a journey. So you have to have what's called the Gashmis of the Ruchnius, the, the physical aspect of the spiritual, then becomes the spiritual aspect of the physical. So eventually become the physical that we understand and can touch and see today. So in these many gradations, the first step of a spirit... Now, there's no physical face of an ox in heaven. It's a spiritual expression, a spiritual manifestation. But the first stage of spiritual becoming physical is when the spiritual energy has a manifestation in the face of an ox, in the face of a lion, in the face of an eagle. Hence, we know the golden calf was from the Pnei Shar of the Markava. And in fact, there's a commentary that I didn't know until last week when I was preparing my class that says that the Kruvim in the Mishkan, which we'll talk about tomorrow, were actually the face of calves. Normally, it was the face of a boy, a boy and a girl. But that was a Pnei Shar. And the point is, since there's a divine energy of Hashem that comes through an eagle and through a lion, Therefore, it was those two that were depicted on the paroches. On the thing that I guess it's not 